This program is brought to you by Shell Energy, who is helping guide businesses through their energy transition by offering a tailored energy roadmap and solutions across the energy value chain. Learn more at shellenergy.com business. The energy transition is complex, and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. On the last episode, we looked at the role of copper in the energy transition. Another key material is ammonia. It serves many vital purposes across a range of industries, but can we produce it sustainably? On the podcast today, we look at ammonia as an energy generator, a key piece of the maritime puzzle and a potential supplement for hydrogen. How can the industry produce ammonia with as little carbon emissions as possible, but also fit into the energy transition machine? We're about to find out. Joining me to discuss these topics and more is Wood Mackenzie's own Mariana Moreira, who joins us from London. Mariana, welcome to your first Horizons podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, we are so, so excited to have you here. As always, I like to get into the bottom line up front right away. So can you give us one key takeaway from today's discussion that all listeners should know? I'll try to keep it very quick and simple. I would say that, you know, energy demand for ammonia is all the buzz these days, but uh, realistically speaking, it's unlikely to reach commercial level volumes before 2030. So until then, the decarbonization of traditional markets will be the most significant driver of demand and key to achieve the cost competitive supply at a global scale sooner rather than later. Well, that certainly is a bottom line that we are going to unpack under the course of this podcast. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Also joining us is Magnus Ankerstrand, president of Yara Clean Ammonium at Yara International. Magnus, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Same question to you, and we're also very excited to have you. Um, but before you answer that, can you give us a little bit of your background and the work you're doing at Yara? Of course. Yeah. So uh, Yara is today one of the largest fertilizer manufacturers in the world and distributors. And ammonia is a core component into our fertilizer production. So our ammonia uh, division, so Yara Clean Ammonia, uh, is the world's largest trader and distributor of ammonia today. Um, and we're developing that, uh, the existing business, uh, making uh, ammonia available all over the world today, but we're also then working to transition that to clean ammonia. So that is blue and green uh, ammonia. Blue and green ammonia, that's something that I had not heard until preparing for this episode. So we're, we're really excited to also unpack that. What is your one key takeaway from today's discussion that you think all listeners should know? I think uh, the key thing to know is that ammonia is a fuel uh, which contains no CO2 when it's burned. So it's a, it's a zero carbon fuel and it's one that's available worldwide today and something that can be scaled relatively fast, particularly compared uh, to hydrogen. So with that, let's go ahead and just jump right into the discussion. So taking it right back to the start, where does ammonia fit into the current market and what is it used for? Mariana, let's start with you. Okay, so global ammonia production today stands at 200 million tons per year, more or less. Uh, and that makes it one of the largest commodities produced by the petrochemical sector, uh, which is equivalent in scale to like ethylene. So it's a big deal within the pet chems. Um, it's mostly used in fertilizer production, which accounts for over three quarters of global demand. 
uh, of which Yara is is a big a big player. And then the other quarter or so is used in many many products. Um, it includes acrylonitrile, rubber fibers, refrigeration applications, cleaning products, and so on and so on. So there is there is definitely a lot of of pies in which ammonia has its fingers on. Anything to add to that? No, I, I think that's uh, that's uh, exactly right. I mean, it's uh, ammonia is a core component of uh, fertilizer today, and ammonia is actually nitrogen and hydrogen. That that's what makes up the molecule. And traditionally, uh, ammonia was developed because you needed something to carry the nitrogen, right? But that's what you need in in fertilizer. Whereas now, it's uh, it's actually the hydrogen that we're after uh, because the hydrogen part is is you know what gives the energy, and um, and ammonia is an excellent way of transporting uh, hydrogen. And that's what opens up new opportunities for using ammonia, for instance, in, as a fuel in the shipping industry, but also for, for power production or simply just to transport uh, hydrogen from A to B. Uh, so what does current production look like? So currently, I mean, uh, currently, as, as Mariana pointed out, most ammonia produced is being upgraded directly into fertilizer or other petrochemical products uh, where it's uh, produced. And then you have uh, a certain amount of the ammonia that's traded on the market that you know is exported out of the plant as ammonia typically on on vessels or, or pipeline in, in the US but the interesting part is the ammonia plant without going too much into the into the technical detail the ammonia plant is essentially made up of two parts you have the front end uh, and you have the back end and in the front end you take uh, natural gas you crack it uh, so you split it into make uh, making co2 and hydrogen and then you take nitrogen from the air and then you take that hydrogen and nitrogen into the second part of the plant, that what we call the synthesis loop, and you make uh, ammonia. So all the CO2 is, is sort of emitted in, in the production, but there are essentially two ways of decarbonizing uh, ammonia. You can either take that stream of CO2 that you make and compress it and, and store it. So that's what we call CCS, um, carbon capture and, and storage and, or sequestration. Uh, and then you get what we call blue ammonia. The other way is to take that entire front end of the plant, replace it with electrolysis, and then you make ammonia by splitting water, so H2O, into hydrogen and oxygen, and then you get the hydrogen that way. That's how the existing production works, and, and that's how we can decarbonize it, basically two ways to the target. Mariana, I have a question for you. Um, and like hydrogen, ammonia comes in a few colors. We talked a little bit about green and blue, but I've also heard about gray and brown, what are the distinctions here? Okay, so Magnus already touched a little bit on that, right? Um, so ammonia is made from hydrogen, which can be made by different processes, and nitrogen, which is extracted from the air, right? So the colors of ammonia, they come from the hydrogen production step, and so they are similar to those that we would apply to hydrogen. Um, so in terms of gray ammonia, that refers to ammonia whose hydrogen source is natural gas. That is the main way that we produce ammonia these days. Then brown or black um, refers to ammonia produced from coal as feedstock. That's usually the case in China. And in our analysis, we, we typically refer to gray, black and brown as the conventional ammonia. And then Magnus already explained that blue refers to ammonia that uses gas or coal as a hydrogen source, but then the production process includes carbon capture and utilization or storage, so CCS or CCUS. And green refers to ammonia made from hydrogen produced from water electrolysis using renewable power. So blue and green, we usually call those uh, low-carbon ammonia. So there can be a pretty big difference in the carbon intensity of each of these. 
Yes, yes. And there's more colors than these, by the way, but these are the main the main processes being um, being implemented these days or, or planned even. Wait, what other colors are there? I'm really curious now. <laughs> there's turquoise ammonia, there's pink ammonia, um, there's gold if you think of green only using solar power instead of other renewable power sources. There's there's a whole array, a whole a whole rainbow of, of colors you can think of. I like that it's gold because with hydrogen, I've only heard it as yellow, but gold is a great rebranding. Or that. I know, I like gold. <laughs> gold and like the sun. But, but I think the important part is, is also to keep in mind that ammonia as, you know, a product is the same, right? It, there's no difference. There's no physical difference mm-hmm. uh, on the, I mean, the product in itself. That the molecule is exactly the same. It's it's how it was manufactured that you know makes up the the difference, and 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 you know as Mariana points out, there are different ways of of doing it and and different sources. But I think there's sort of one, um, one sort of treat or one one attribute of the product which is you know, the same uh, regardless of how it's produced, and that's the carbon footprint, right? Um, or it's not the same, but that's you know that what makes up the real difference between the different types of ammonia. So. Any type of ammonia, uh, even within the same colors, can come with uh, a different carbon footprint. And that's sort of how you can compare the different types of ammonia. And that, that's at the end of the day, that, that's what matters, right? What, what's the carbon footprint of, of this, ammonia, uh, this ammonia? It doesn't really matter if it's green or if it's blue. If, I mean, as long as um, the carbon footprint that is reported is, is you know, the exact one and you include everything, then uh, in principle, um, there's no difference between how it was manufactured. And speaking of that, on the show today, we're going to look at the three pillars of low carbon ammonia production. First off is its use as a source of energy. Secondly, its potential as an e-fuel in the shipping industry. And thirdly, its possible role as a hydrogen carrier. We touched on that a little bit earlier, um, but Magnus, for our listeners, can you just reiterate with the hydrogen component of ammonia that can be used straight up as hydrogen or are additional, additional machinery needed? No, so so essentially, you can burn ammonia same way as you would have burnt uh, hydrogen, and and use that as a fuel. So so essentially, you know, I mean, as a thermal fuel to uh, to get propulsion or create electricity or whatever it is, whatever it is you want to use the fuel for, right? So and that that's a nice thing with ammonia that you don't have to do anything about it uh, in in a lot of applications. So for instance, um, the big engine manufacturers are now developing engines ship i mean ship engines that can run on ammonia as uh, as an example or dual fuel engines even that can run on both ammonia and fossil fuel and and same you have you know big japanese power producers working on introducing ammonia in uh, in their coal generation plants so essentially you burn ammonia uh, same way as you burn coal today the only difference is that the carbon footprint of that ammonia is uh, is zero and there are some applications where you want to have the hydrogen and, and, and not the ammonia for, for different reasons. Um, for instance, if you, for the mobility industry, so cars, etc., and then you, you have the opportunity to also, what we call, to crack the ammonia back into hydrogen. Although, as of now, that's not a, that's a process that's not very uh, energy efficient. So the best way today is to use ammonia, burn ammonia as ammonia, and when you can use it in the way, shape uh, it is, um, that's definitely the best use of it. Well, uh, I think another thing we we need to touch on a bit more in depth is uh, how we can use ammonia into the power generation sector. Um, so ammonia can be burned directly or it can be cracked into hydrogen, like Magnus just mentioned, and it can be used in turbines or, or fuel cells. So in the power sector, ammonia can actually be burned on its own 
or as a part of a fuel mix, uh, which we would call ammonia co-firing. Now, today, ammonia co-firing is showing more potential than, than using ammonia on its own, mostly because combustion speed improves when co-firing ammonia with other fuels, and that also supports retrofitting ammonia co-firing into existing power plants. Especially for coal-based power plants, this could really be beneficial um, uh, so co-firing those, those power plants with ammonia would help them reduce CO2 emissions. And this is important, especially, for instance, in Asia, where you have very young power plants that are running on coal and you don't want to retire those assets too early, right? So the idea is that you can actually use those assets for longer as long as you use ammonia, low-carbon ammonia, to be able to significantly reduce emissions there. So that, there is a lot of work being done uh, on that front to develop that market, especially in Asia again. So there is projects underway in Japan, in Singapore, um, in Indonesia, in, in Malaysia. So there's, there's plenty of R&D in that space. And we do see a lot of potential. Um, I think by 2050, our, our models put uh, about 50 million tons of ammonia demand in that sector by 2050. But uh, that's our base case scenario. But we also expect it could be as much as 100 million tons if, if the technology actually advances faster than, than, we, than we think. So definitely a sector to keep an eye on. And, um, and it shows a lot of potential for ammonia usage there. That is fascinating. So earlier we talked about the maritime industry. How does ammonia fit into plans to decarbonize shipping? Well, I, I think if you look at, we can start with the IMO targets. So the IMO, International International Maritime Organization, has set a target that we want to reduce 50% of uh, CO2 emissions from shipping by, by 2050. And, uh, you know, to do that, the industry can do a lot of different things. Uh, but I think there's no way to get to that target without, without addressing the fuel situation. So um, you need a low carbon, zero carbon fuel uh, in order to get there. So essentially, it, it fits very well into that roadmap and uh, is basically the only way you can decarbonize uh, the shipping industry. There will, of course, be other zero-carbon fuels as well, um, like hydrogen, for instance, uh, is, is another very good one. And I think you know different types of fuel are, uh, are a good fit for different types of vessels, di different types of uh, sailing distances, even batteries, for instance, for short-distance ferries and so on. Uh, so you need, you need all of them. But for long distance shipping, particularly because you need less uh, tank space with a, with a fuel that contains more energy per volume unit, ammonia can be a very good fit. What is the energy density of ammonia compared to some of the other traditional fuel types? So if you compare it with, with the hydrogen, as an example, it, it contains 50% more energy than, uh, than hydrogen. But if you compare it to some of the fossil fuels, it, you know, uh, it's maybe half of, uh, right? So a little bit simplified, we could say you need twice the size of a, of a fuel tank if you, if you run on ammonia compared to a fossil fuel. Are additional advances in the machinery needed to power ships at scale, though? Do we have to completely redesign the engines, or are there opportunities to co-power the way we can with coal power plants? I, I mean, I think in general terms, I would say that ammonia as a fuel is mostly for new, build, new builds, because, I mean, the engines... Uh, need to be rebuilt, but also, you know, the tank, the piping, um, you know, all of these uh, different elements that also uh, need to be rebuilt. So, I mean, if you go sort of beyond the pilot project uh, stage, I, I think it's it's a new build game. 
be honest. On the other hand, it's extremely relevant for the new build industry because I mean the vessels that are being built now are being, being you know investments are being that, that are taken now. Those vessels will run beyond 2050, so they will have to at some point uh, to comply with much stricter emission targets than uh, what the current fleet is. Oh, and I imagine there's huge opportunity with that too. Speaking of advances in new technology, being able to redesign the hulls potentially, even given what we have in computing technologies. I'm completely speculating here. This is outside my depth, pun intended, but with with the opportunity to design something from the ground up, I imagine we can leverage a lot of the other advancing industries as they seek to to also progress on their roadmap towards net zero. I think if I may add to that, actually, um, I, I would like to play a little bit the devil advocate here. Um, I think definitely there is a huge potential for ammonia in the shipping industry in the long term. Um, our downstream research team indicates that ammonia could actually account for 40% of the global e-fuels demand uh, by 2050. So that's about 40 million tons. 40 million tons of ammonia going into that sector. So that is that is significant. But we only see that demand picking up pace from the mid-2030s, especially because it's not really used today, right? And because it is for mainly for new builds. So there's still a lot of R&D being um, put in that space. So there's still a lot of development to be done. And in the meantime, there are other fuels better placed to take that space for the existing ships mostly. So for instance, methanol, e-methanol is, is a very promising uh, e-fuel in the next decade, um, which we do expect will take most of that space uh, over ammonia, mostly for methanol producers' fleets. So that is already happening. It's already uh, being used. Um, so this to say, ammonia does have a lot of potential, but we think it's going to come at a later stage. It's not going to be so early right it's not going to be just now and I, and I think i mean i think we we agree with a lot of that um i think a critical element for the moment now will be 24 25 when you know the, the first engines come and, and clearly at that stage we'll have pilot projects i mean we won't have you know significant uptake in terms of new vessels being ordered and built uh that early but i think that period will be essential um in order to make that happen and and there are a lot of shipping companies that are very forward leaning and you know definitely are looking to uh develop you know relatively small portions of of their fleet but uh, nevertheless you know that can make up a quite quite substantial volume relatively i mean towards i would say towards the end of this decade but small in comparison to what the major potential would be right when we talk sort of 25 30% of the global fuel market that's you know that's 2050 not not 2030 and I think, again, there will be room for all the different fuels, right? Because uh, essentially demand's not the issue, it's, it's supply and access to, access to the fuel. That's going to be the limita- limitating factor. Um, and methanol will be, you know, definitely uh, something that we'll see relatively early because, it, you know, it's easier to put in use uh, today than uh, on the vessel side. Challenge, of course, is that it does emit CO2 when you burn it, um, you know, and, and even though the CO2 is recycled and so on, that that's... You know, at least a challenge for scaling, right? Because at some point, uh, it will be get you know it will be difficult to to sort of monitor whether that CO two was actually recycled or or you know made on purpose, uh, biogenic or or not. So that those are some of the challenges facing the that part. But I, but again, I think you know, um, it, it's a supply issue, and all all fuels will be will be needed. Wind, solar, natural gas. How much? How little? How many hows does it take to meet your business goals? 
Shell Energy knows the energy transition can throw a lot at you. Opinions, facts, numbers, and data seem endless and can cloud the path ahead. But what if they can make this whole transition a bit easier to navigate? Shell Energy has the size, scale, and solutions to help move you forward. And while they can take you from A to Z, they know that the most important move is often just getting from A to B. And they're already doing it with some of the world's leading companies, providing new and innovative solutions to help you manage energy consumption and reduce your carbon footprint by providing tailored energy roadmaps that make sense for your business. So keep on moving forward. And with Shell Energy's expertise, what once seemed challenging will seem easier by the day. Learn more at shellenergy.com business. We've talked a lot about hydrogen on the podcast. I feel like even in episodes that are completely unrelated to hydrogen, it manages to come back around, which is central to the appetite I think society as a whole has right now for looking towards hydrogen to really be a, a panacea to usher in a net zero economy. And hydrogen has also come up in some of our conversations so far. So how does ammonia serve as a carrier for hydrogen? And core to that, why is that important to building out this low carbon hydrogen economy of scale? We talked about that a little bit, but I really want to dig into that question more. Mariana, let's start with you on that one. Well, I mean, we already touched on this, right? So ammonia does have three molecules of hydrogen in it. Uh, because of this hydrogen content, um, it obviously can play a role in the hydrogen sector itself. So in some cases, ammonia can actually be more interesting than hydrogen um, because it's cheaper to liquefy. It's less flammable, even though it, it is hazardous, but it's not as flammable as hydrogen. And because of the existing demand, it already has some shipping and some handling infrastructure in place around the world, which can be leveraged not just for existing end users, but for the new end users as well, because the molecule is exactly the same, like Agnes just mentioned. So essentially, you already know how to work with ammonia much better than you know how to work with hydrogen. So that market is very, very well established. You know, if you if you think about costs, even ammonia is, is the most economical way to export hydrogen over long distances today. So the fact that you can use ammonia as a hydrogen carrier and you can potentially crack it at destination means that you can ship it cheaper. I think the cost concern right now is more on the cracking side of things. So if you can actually use ammonia instead of using hydrogen today, it makes more sense in many applications. So it, it makes it easier to develop the hydrogen economy or the low carbon hydrogen economy in the sense that you can combine both of them. You can use hydrogen in certain applications where it makes sense. You can use ammonia in certain applications where it makes sense and you can leverage the logistics. You can leverage the best scenario for each application and for each end user, depending on one of each, you know, you can, you can use both. Yeah, and and I, and I think you know one important part, and particularly you know ammonia produced with uh, CCS, is that it, it's scalable, right? We we can scale it up uh, basically now. Um, of course, it takes a lot of time to build an ammonia plant, but but at least you know the technology is there, the feedstock is there, um, and you know you can get you can get that at, at the scale you want. And that but that and that will sort of help developing the new markets for ammonia as well. Um, whereas on Green ammonia, of course, there are more things that need to come in place. Technology, uh, I would say industrialization of the electrolyzer industry is still, still not there. 
and and also of course the renewable electricity that you need to manufacture uh, large amounts of, of green ammonia and green hydrogen for for that matter uh, is, is not there yet. So and if you look at um, major hubs of green hydrogen or low carbon hydrogen that are currently under development, many of them are away from from the actual end uses that they are trying to supply and some of them are at a scale that is just so immense that even if they do have some demand there it's they still want to put that product somewhere else so the fact that you can transform that hydrogen from low cost low carbon sources like big hubs into wherever that is needed it makes it much more cost effective and and you can just leverage that low cost energy that you are using to produce the hydrogen so speaking of our current infrastructure, what are the big uses for ammonia today? So, so I mean, today it's really the, I mean, the fertilizer industry that, that uses ammonia. So, um, and to the extent that ammonia is, is being transported or shipped around, it, it's typically for that purpose or, or other petrochemical or industrial uh, uses. But only roughly 20, 20 plus million tons of ammonia today out of you know 180 to 200 million tons being produced are actually shipped uh, from A to B today. So that's um, but that's you know done through port terminals, uh, import tanks, uh, you know, specialized infrastructure for ammonia. But we do, it is it is available worldwide. So essentially we you know we can deliver uh, ammonia all over the world, uh, provided of course that there's uh, infrastructure to to receive it. So then, how can the industry incentivize investment in low carbon ammonia? Mariana, let's kick it over to you first. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about ammonia usage in, in energy sectors, and that surely, surely, like we mentioned, has a lot of potential. Uh, but I really doubt that that's the, the way forward in the short term in terms of incentivizing the scale up of this market, you know. So, I mean, we do, the, we do expect that demand for new end users uh, to reach almost the size of the market today by 2050 but in the short term I'm, I'm really not entirely sure that these new end users would be enough to support large-scale investments in the next few years that will um, that will create a competitive liquid low carbon ammonia market so i do think we should be focusing more on supporting the existing sectors and the existing suppliers into becoming less carbon intensive even if they're not zero carbon right away um so in, in our view, those are the only markets with the scale to stimulate the necessary investments in the next few years. So that means policymakers should probably put their focus on those markets. They should support and incentivize them to decarbonize sooner. And that will, will in turn drive investments that build that scale um, instead of, of waiting for projects driven by energy demand. The way to go about it needs to be very well thought of. Uh, policymakers need to be very careful about how they go about pushing that switch uh, because let's say if European users have to switch to low carbon feedstock, the policies will have to be in place to prevent those industries from moving overseas. So producers of ammonia derivatives, for instance, such as fertilizer, they will need to have feedstock costs that allow them to compete against imports into the domestic market as well as in export markets they are currently present in. So there really needs to be a concerted effort on both the supply and the demand side of the market. If you only support the R&D and finance schemes to develop new demand and uses in the energy sector, 
there is a risk that the low carbon production hubs will be unevenly distributed. You will have some regions at a clear cost advantage versus others. Since the fertilizer industry is so absolutely key, it's very unlikely that the less cost advantaged regions would allow full dependency on imports for such essential products. Um, so there really needs to be a, a concerted effort and a very well thought of way of approaching this. It absolutely sounds like it. Magnus, anything from your side to add here? I agree. I mean, there, there are, you, you need incentives to make this happen, right? Uh, because ammonia is a more expensive fuel and, and you know, green ammonia, or blue ammonia is more expensive to make, uh, develop and manufacture than uh, existing ammonia. And, then, and of course, particularly if you talk about converting existing plants, uh, you know, um, compared to just keep running them, uh, you know, that, that's the type of investment that needs to be incentivized one way or the other, because if not, it simply doesn't make business case sense, right? So on the downstream side, I mean, you have measures like the IMO target, you can have, you know, like in Japan, where, where you have, you know, the Paris Agreement targets, which means that they have to do something about their power producing industry and coal, coal, you know, coal fired production and, and, and so on. That will contribute to, to the new demand. But then you also have, you know, you need incentives on the production side, and and incentives, of course, come in come in two shapes, right? You have uh, taxes or fees or or whatever that puts a price on emitting carbon, and you have support, incentives, subsidies, uh, whatever that also grants that uh, helps the industry shift from or build uh, clean production, and and I think you need both. So, for instance, in the European Union, you have the European Trading Scheme that puts a price on on carbon. And obviously, that's that's important in the sense that it makes you know the case for producing ammonia without any emission better, right? But it but it's not enough. I think what's really interesting is the the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed you know a couple of months ago in, in the U.S., which provides incentives both for green hydrogen and ammonia production, as well as as CCS. So essentially, you get a tax credit for each ton of CO two stored, uh, as an example. That's particularly interesting because as an incentive, it's it's very predictable. Right? You know that as long as you fulfill the different criteria that goes with the subsidy, you will get it, right? Which makes it easier to, to plan projects and, and you know, will draw a lot of attention, I think, uh, to the U.S. The way that the European Union is currently going about it with relatively large support schemes, but funds and, and sort of grants that are given after sort of a bespoke assessment of each uh, each project is much, much more difficult because, you know, it takes too much time. You, you don't know before you sort of develop the project very far whether you will get support or not. And that's, that's clearly a challenge, particularly if you want to scale this up fast. Uh, you need predictability. Like, like the ETS is predictable in the sense that at least it's sort of a universal scheme. You need universal schemes on the support side as well. So I think you've both mentioned this a little bit, but are there any specific regions or governments who are really leading the push towards decarbonization of the ammonia industry or anyone really looking at building a low carbon ammonia supply chain it's it's a bit of a difficult question but i mean the answer is yes right i mean with the inflation reduction act as an example the us is clearly taking a lead role uh and, and will take a lead role and, and of course combined with the fact that energy is much more abundant and cheap in the us that's um that's you know a clear a competitive edge for uh, for the U.S. On the other hand, the EU is doing a lot of things uh, to develop the market and and enable the market and 
uh, you know, by requiring certain amounts of green hygiene being used in production, by setting targets for different parts of the industry and, and, and so on. But of course, the uh, I would say the, the conditions for producing hydrogen ammonia in the EU are not fantastic, right? Uh, from a nature perspective or from a, yeah, from a natural resources perspective. Then you sort of have the Middle East who really don't have any policies on anything uh, related to this, but they have a lot of sun and, and also a lot of wind. So, so I mean, there are different, there are different sort of attributes in, in different regions, but I think those are, and, and same with, you know, Australia sort of, sort of falls a bit into the same category as the Middle East uh, from, uh, I mean, from <laughs> pure uh, weather, natural resources uh, perspective. And perhaps a little bit more forward-leaning on, on sort of incentivizing this to happen. But that, those are some of the major regions. Curious, Mariana, if you have any thoughts on which regions are leading the push towards decarbonization of ammonia. So I think there are a few ways to look at it. So if you look from a demand perspective, I feel like, uh, like Magnus mentioned, the US is doing a little bit of a push in there um, and Europe as well. I feel like Europe has pretty aggressive targets being discussed, especially under the Repower EU um, policy, but none of that has actually been materialized into actually actual regulation. So there is a, a quite a bit of potential in there for, for an extra push. Also on the demand side, I would say maybe not for the existing market, but for the new end users, I feel like there are very uh, big pushes being made in the Asian markets for ammonia use into power plants, um, for ammonia use into maritime. There's there's something happening in, in Singapore there as well. So for new end users, I think both Europe and Asia are, are making big pushes in that front and a lot of R&D, a lot of investment in that front. In terms of supply, Magnus already touched on this, but I feel like, you know, Oceania, Middle East, uh, the US, there's a lot of potential in there for for low carbon ammonia supply, even if they don't necessarily have uh, huge uh, demand sectors or, or huge targets to decarbonize their own industry, especially like in the Middle East. So it really depends on whether you're looking at from a demand perspective or from a supply perspective. And maybe that's one of the issues, right? Maybe maybe there should be a little bit more of a concerted effort to try and marry the supply and the demand. I know there are some agreements in place for, for, for offtakes, but that is also one of the main issues with guaranteeing that a lot of these big product, projects are actually going ahead is to guarantee the offtake of those. Uh, so maybe that is, that is a point going forward, right? Is to try and marry more the supply and the demand of, of ammonia, of low carbon ammonia. How is the EU looking to address the ammonia production emission problem? If you think about the current emissions, I think, uh, I mean, you have, uh, as, as mentioned, the European trading scheme that then effectively puts a price on, on carbon emissions. Um, and I think that combined with different incentives such as the EU Innovation Fund and other um, you know, money dedicated for, uh, for transitioning hydrogen and ammonia production towards green and, and blue ammonia uh, are, are sort of the, ma the main measures uh, that they have. I think uh, in addition to that, making sure that abundant renewable electricity is being produced or be, I mean being built out is, is essential because without that, it's, you know, it's not going to be possible. There are only certain parts of Europe where CCS is, is viable. I mean, I mean, and mainly, you know, around the North Sea, uh, which certainly opens up for blue hydrogen, blue ammonia in, in, in that region. But I think, you, you know, 
to get significant manufacturing capacity, you need green ammonia as well, or green hydrogen, green ammonia as well. But in order to do that, you need massive amounts of renewable electricity. And we need to keep in mind, it's not only the ammonia hydrogen industry that needs that electricity. There's a lot of other uses uh, as well. I think that's that's probably the one, you know, single most critical thing if the EU wants to develop clean uh, hydrogen and ammonia production, you need to get massive, massive uh, renewable electricity and, and relatively fast as well. All right. Last question, and then we'll wrap it up. Which sectors should we be targeting to develop sooner to achieve an economy of scale for low carbon ammonia? I'm really curious if it's going to be maritime, if it's going to be land transportation. Magnus, let's start with you. Well, I think I think we need to work on everything in parallel in a way, but it began, and the shipping industry is probably what needs the most work because there that's where you need the most developments to to happen. As I said, I, you know, there's you need those pilot projects to come on stream. Uh, you need to see sort of a proof of concept, and you need to uh, have those in place to sort of uh, uh, take out all the small teething issues and errors and and so on. But I think on the same time, at the same time, uh, it's important to really promote the the power sector as well, because uh, that's where you can get a significant impact on emissions relatively fast, and also from a technology perspective, that's much closer, right? That's that's much easier to make happen. We shouldn't forget the fertilizer industry either. I mean, that's uh, you know essentially an industry and and a supply chain where you don't have to change anything, right? Physically, uh, once you've changed the production, everything else stays exactly the same. So, so I think you know you need you need to work on all three because they have different attributes and different timelines. Mariana, what do you think? Well, I I completely agree. Um, but like I like I said, I I think we should place more products in the existing end users. Obviously, fertilizer is a big one, so it would be like low-hanging fruit, like an obvious target here. I think if you're going to run a world-scale low-carbon ammonia plant, you're going to need people to buy big volumes. You, you can't just be relying on pilot projects, right? So if, you're, if you want to scale up the, the market, at least in the early stages, I think you really need to focus more on the traditional end users as potential buyers of that product, not just power or or maritime or whatever it is that eventually is going to be important. But for now, from a volume perspective, is really not going to be where you're going to put most of it. So, you know, it, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Like I said, I think on our on our actual written piece is about the fertilizer sector and, and the other traditional end users, they will only take that product if it's cost competitive, if the price is competitive to to the other conventional suppliers. But at the same time, you can only achieve that level of price if you're running a plant at high rates rather than just running a tiny plant to feed a pilot plant, right? Um, so as long as you have that, as long as you can lower your costs to a level that is competitive in, in, in the current scenario and in the current market and with the other sources, then surely you need to target those markets as well to be able to achieve those outputs. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Our listeners really appreciate it. Mariana, where can listeners learn more about the work that you and your team are doing at Wood Mackenzie? So we're currently developing a long-term ammonia service uh, within our CHEMS research. Um, it's not currently available, it will be available next year, but for now you can keep an eye out for further insights and you can always read the actual piece that, that generated this podcast. And is there anyone you want to give a special thank you or shout out to today? 
Just a shout out to my team and to our, to our hydrogen research team and our consulting team. They were absolutely fundamental in developing all our models and they put a lot of work into, into our ammonia analysis. Magnus, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. We really appreciate all of your contributions on the podcast. Where can listeners learn more about the work that you are doing with Yara Clean Ammonium at Yara International? I, th I think the most obvious uh, place to start looking is uh, is our webpage. That's uh, yarocleanammonia.com, and and we have a lot of different pieces there, both what we do on our you know downstream marketing and market development, as well as uh, on the on the production side. And then last question: anyone from your side, you want to give a special thank you or a shout out to? No, I think I'll, I'll have to say the same. It's it's the team is you know working uh, day and night, uh, both on the market side as well as the uh, well as the production side to both enable uh, demand for, uh, for clean ammonia, but certainly also to actually get the molecules uh, decarbonized. Outstanding. Again, thank you both so much for your time. This was a truly enlightening conversation, and I really look forward to see how ammonia takes over the transportation industry. Thank you. Low carbon ammonia has a vital role to play in a net zero emissions economy but to achieve supply while keeping costs competitive will require a change. Europe is set to play a key role in shaping policy that will support these changes. Increased demand for low carbon ammonia is necessary to further the energy transition, but support to the industry to supply it has to be increased. Current producers need to increase low carbon capacity, but new producers to the market could pose a threat. As policies evolve almost daily and the market hurdles forward, ammonia production must decarbonize and it must do so fast. Thanks for joining us on this November edition of the Horizons podcast. Thanks to Mariana and Magnus for being with us. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and we'll see you on the next episode. Stay right here though, because now we're gonna leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. Thanks Liz, I'm Simon Flowers, chief analyst at Wood McKenzie. At the end of each Horizons podcast, I like to give my final thoughts on this month's topics. So here they are. What we've learned from avoiding pandemonia is that there is a pathway to success for low carbon ammonia. It starts with decarbonizing the current ammonia value chain. Then it's all about huge potential for growth, including in energy. Three things for me. First, we need to build markets in new segments like energy. Second, we need scale in supply to bring costs down and ensure low carbon ammonia costs are competitive. Third, policy is very important in points one and two. Policy has to strike the right balance between building demand and domestic sources of supply. If the EU, for example, successfully builds a market for ammonia but doesn't support indigenous supply, then it will just open the door for exports from other countries who will seize the opportunity. A lost opportunity. And we've learned from the energy crisis, no country or region wants to be too dependent on energy imports. Thank you for listening to this, the November edition of Horizons. Thanks to Mariana and Magnus for joining us and delving into the challenges and opportunities for ammonia. You can find the report and the podcast on our website at woodmac.com forward slash horizons and stream the show wherever you get your podcasts. Join us in a couple of weeks when we'll focus on our December horizons called Silver Linings. After such a difficult year, we highlight five reasons to be cheerful about energy markets in 2023. See you then.